Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is Luke Meddings, who brings us what they heard, how the Beatles, the Beach Boys and Bob Dylan listened to each other and changed music forever. Using timelines derived from release dates, studio sessions and personal encounters, Luke reveals the paths of influence across an astonishing four-year period between 63 and 67, in which these iconic artists cross-pollinate like crazy via recordings, rivalries, rumours, artistic envy and quite a few drugs. This is such an original, astute, funny and quite personal book and it really urges you to listen and listen deeply to this music that we've all spent so long with already. That's no mean feat. Luke Meddings, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm very well, Joe, and thank you so much for having me on. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about what they heard, uh, how the Beatles, Beach Boys and Bob Dylan listened to each other and changed music forever. It's a really, really insightful and interesting read. Um, but I think before we talk about specifically the book I wanted to get just a, a few lines from you about your kind of childhood uh, and how you came to find this music because you start the book with a, a chapter where you you kind of go over that and I think it's safe to say that you didn't have a kind of traditional kind of pop loving household did you? No it was a very musical and music loving household um, there was loads of classical music and I grew up a very young kid, um, listening to it, enjoying it on the record player. My dad had loads of jazz, which I discovered later. But until we got a TV, um, which was when I was 10, really no pop in the house at all. No pop radio, no records. I think the closest we had was a, a kind of Christian folk song album or something. I tried Googling it. I think Dana, uh, the Irish singer, featured on it, but I couldn't find it. Um, lust to the mists of time and no bad thing. <laughs> there, there, there was nothing in the house. Uh, as, as I mentioned in the book, on one occasion, after I discovered the Beatles, I found the Twist and Shout EP kind of deep in my dad's record collection. I was really thrilled because I thought it, it kind of meant that secretly he'd always been a fan, but it was like a joke uh, leaving present from his work. And it had all these signatures on the back. I guess when the TV came in, that was it. You know, we started to watch Top of the Pops. I actually was able to trace it via Google again, that I because I remember seeing Let It Be or the end of Let It Be, the film, when they still showed it on TV mm. as a kid. And I, I, I was able to date it to Christmas 75. Uh, so, I mean, I think the idea of the book is, is really refreshing. It's very difficult, as we know, to come at the Beatles uh, in book form from an original angle in 2021. Just tell us a little bit about where the idea for the book came from. It really came quite naturally out of conversations in the bar, pub conversations with my friend Neil, who is the publisher, um, and my cousin Marcus. And we kind of re regularly have met regularly for years Marcus was there when I bought my first Beatles album, A Hard Day's Night, many years ago in South London. Um, and I've been friends with Neil since we were 20. We were in a band together. And we just kind of had this recurring conversation where Neil in particular would say, so when did this come out? When did that come out? And I realized that even though I was kind of meant to be the expert in that bit of the conversation, I wasn't always sure. Um, and sometimes when I looked up, when one record had come out, the order effect, the influence it might have had on something else, I was surprised. Uh, then he co-founded Weatherglass Books, the publisher, uh, and then asked me kind of out of the blue if I'd like to write a book based on our conversations, I guess, kind of answering all the questions that had come up. And I said, yes, please. Was it an easy book to to write? Was it a long? Was it was it a lockdown process? Uh, yeah, I think it, um, to start with, because you know, um, like most of us have a, a day job, a lot of it was written probably for the first nine months, 
just any time I could match, like including like writing it on my phone on the bus kind of thing. So when lockdown happened, I got this stretch of time because I was furloughed. And um, that was in, in terms of me having time to really focus on it and, and really understand uh, what I was trying to do with it and where it could go. That, that helped me. I, I, I don't quite know what would have happened without it. So let's look at the the kind of the content of of the book it starts essentially in 1962 where these three artists the Beatles the Beach Boys and Bob Dylan um, they all kind of start their careers uh, as you say in the book there aren't there's not a huge amount of connections between Love Me Do the first Dylan album and the Beach Boys album Surfing Safari what connections are there if any, between these three artists that would go on to have, as, you, as the book details, a lot of connections. What connections are there? And were they already standing out, these artists, amongst the other music that was around? Hmm, well, that's a, that's a great question. One of the things that really interested me writing the book was realising kind of how exactly they were of the same generation. You know, they, they were all of them, uh, the, the Beach Boys and the Beatles and Dylan, born within... I think three years of each other, the start of the 1940s. You know, Lennon and Dylan and Paul and Brian are born within sort of 18 months, two years of each other, less than two years apart. So they really were the same age. Um, and kind of, you know, growing up in not dissimilar kind of surroundings, although I've seen different, different communities, different towns, different countries, you know, n- none of them were extremely poor. Uh, but they certainly weren't wealthy um, or, or that comfortable. And so, you know, they kind of grew up in these not dissimilar circumstances at the same age. And so rock and roll absolutely kind of hit them. They were the perfect age for it um, when, you know, most people got to know it uh, around 1955. So they're, you know, kind of 12, 13, 14, 15. Although when they start recording, they sound quite different. They kind of came from the same place, both in terms of, I, th- I think in lots of ways, that their backgrounds, but certainly in the way that rock and roll hit them as teenagers uh, and the love they had for it. You know, they all of them adored Chuck Berry, Little Richard. Dylan, you know, absolutely loved Little Richard. Beatles loved Buddy Holly. Um, they all had that kind of hit of, of rock and roll in the mid-50s and then the late 50s. I think what you can hear in their first recordings is there's a kind of rawness to it. I think I describe the first song on Dylan's first album as sounding like a child jumping into a laundry basket and just kind of throwing out the clothes was the idea in my mind. That's, you know, there's such enthusiasm, you know, a lot of the pop music around that time or the white pop music had become um, quite kind of watered down, it was trying to sound smooth. It was trying to sound safe. Uh, and that was a, a process that had happened from, you know, from 59, certainly onwards. There was loads of interesting stuff happening at that time, but not so much in pop music. But I think they all still had that kind of energy that they'd taken from rock and roll and they put it into these different styles, you know. So Dylan had rock and roll and then he he, he got kind of, big into to folk blues. Um, the Beatles had rock and roll and they fell in love with soul. And then the Beach Boys had, you know, different influences, in, including R&B, um, but also the barbershop stuff that Brian Wilson loved. So they all kind of added something slightly different to rock and roll. And they came up with these quite kind of scrawny sounding records in the first instance. But there's a, there's a kind of energy to it. They're really jumping in mm. and they're not trying to sound too kind of smooth, I would say. So the Beatles' impact on America is in February 64 is obviously well known and has been talked about and written about and will continue to be so, I'm sure, for many years in the future. Uh, So let's just get a little bit of positioning here. As far as you kind of know, before that February 64 Ed Sullivan show, was Dylan and Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, were they aware of the Beatles I think they would have heard them at Christmas, probably, because I Want to Hold Your Hand was such a huge hit. You know, thousands of people pouring into record stores across New York to buy it, and no doubt other cities as well. It was kind of rush release by Capital when they realised 
what was happening in the UK and that they basically had almost missed out on uh, the, the hit of the century. And there was some interest from the, uh, the American press in Beatlemania when it broke in autumn of 63. So November, December, you start to get Time um, and I think CBS News covering Beatlemania more than the Beatles. It was about the phenomenon and they were kind of a bit sarky about it. They weren't that mm. impressed. Um, then you had, I think, the New York Times magazine and Variety both uh, cover essentially the buzz in the UK, the sales, the pre-sales for I Want to Hold Your Hand. And that's when Capital pick up on it. So I, I can't imagine Dylan and the Beach Boys not hearing them at Christmas, 63, um, 64. So before they were on TV, I, w- I would guess, you know, mm. we, um, and then, you know, then the Beatles were just straight into the, the charts and occupying, you know, most, most, if not all the top five at one point. So who of the Beach Boys and of Dylan, what was the impact like for hearing this kind of strange British beat group? One of the things that I hadn't realised before, and there were, there were many things I discovered along the way, and none of them will be new to everyone, mm. but hopefully some of them will be new to some people. We all know different stuff. was just how much Dylan loved the Beatles when he heard them. He was completely knocked out. He called the chord changes outrageous. He loved the harmonies. You know, he was kind of stunned by their success, obviously, as everyone was. But he he felt you know this is this is what you get when you play with other musicians essentially um, that that was a, a big takeout for him and he had he had tried that um, you know mixed up confusion at the end of sixty two I think already has some kind of light emer- uh, electric guitar in it and there are tryouts and the freewheeling sessions for things like that's all right Momo which he covers with with a, a bit of an electric backing so it's not it's not like he hadn't thought of that. But just hearing that kind of big, very, by then very kind of fully realised band sound must have struck him in the same way that the music he'd, he, he'd loved in the mid-50s had. Uh, for the Beach Boys, I think, um, it must have been pretty uncomfortable. They were away on, on the other side of the world on tour in January 64. And, you know, when we talk about the, the British invasion, um, like the Beatles, were spe- they weren't invading Dylan's territory at this point. They were specifically uh, invading the Beach Boys' territory. Um, and, you know, Brian Wilson in particular was really taken aback, you know, that, that they were essentially doing something very similar. You know, they were melodic, they sang harmony, they wrote their own songs, um, they played rock and roll, and they, they did it all with such energy to Brian Wilson. And, the, and there's a kind of pattern of this happening through the 60s as, they reach different peaks at different times and the others react and, and they're, they're thinking, Oh my God, what, are, you know, what do we do now? And definitely the, the, you know, that first moment for the, for Brian Wilson would have been February 64 when they got back from their tour and found that basically the Beatles had changed it all, changed the landscape. It's a fascinating point. It's not one that I've ever thought about until I read the book. So let's look at Dylan and the Beatles they famously first meet in the middle of 1964. Most of the listeners will be aware, you know, the, the passing of the joint, Aleronovitz, the hotel yeah. room, you know, it's a it's a well-known story and, and a great story. And it's a great part of the anthology when they're all, three of them are kind of remembering this, this time that they spent with Bob. Now, the trite thing to say is the summit of these two, these two yeah. 60s icons meet. Dylan goes electric, the Beatles go acoustic. Now, do you think that there's any accuracy in that? And is there any more that we can say about the influence that they had on each other? I think there is more that we can say about it. I think, you know, we've already seen that Dylan, A, played in bands as a teenager. You know, there's a lovely moment when his band at the high school Jamboree, I think it's the the jacket jamboree or something uh playing i think little richard song so loudly that the head teacher you know it makes me think of the simpsons or something actually does unplug the the speakers at the high school it's fantastic so you know he'd kind of grown up raucous and um you know he'd already done released a single with some kind of light electric backing not dissimilar to what we get on bring it all back home mm. so it's certainly a myth that he hadn't either 
played in bands or that he hadn't tried out with uh, an electric backing uh, before encountering the Beatles at all. And at, at the same time, I think, you know, the Beatles were doing quite strikingly introspective songs on their first and second albums. You know, think of something like There's a Place. The sound of it is is harder than, than Dylan's, you know, obviously solo acoustic. But the idea of it, the kind of in, entering an internal world, again, not that dissimilar to what Brian Wilson was doing within my room around the same time. You know, and with the Beatles, there are, there are lovely ballads. And certainly when I was growing up, I think the first song that was directly linked from a Beatles record back to Dylan was probably You've Got to Hide Your Love Away on Help. But, you know, I, I think you can definitely hear Dylan's influence on A Hard Day's Night, maybe not in the specifics, but in the spirit of it. You know, it's a very acoustic album compared to um, With the Beatles. There's this kind of tremendous directness to, to the songs, most of which are written by and sung by Lennon. And I'm absolutely certain that what they heard in, in January, initially 64 of Dylan, and then listening again throughout the year would, would have informed that in the spring. They were literally writing A Hard Day's Night in Paris when they came across Dylan. Yeah, I think it's on there. He, he said that A Hard Day's Night, the song, was um, kind of a Dylan-ish song and then they beatlefied it that was the, the word he used i mean of the beatles themselves who do you think he was in the 60s i'm talking about the mm. of the who did he connect with i mean obviously his, his friendship with george was well known and and came along later tell us a little bit about what what he kind of made of the the individuals themselves they're kind of slightly different accounts for almost every event and moment in the book which makes it as you'll know which makes it fascinating but kind of tricky to if you're writing a narrative uh, tie it down so you know in some accounts it was George that picked up on the Dylan albums in Paris for example but you know I think temperamentally John and Bob were quite similar they were very kind of rebarbative uh, they could be quite cruel in conversation um you know we know that Lennon could be violent at that time uh, and had been yet they were both more kind of self-consciously artistic I guess you know um Lennon writing his his kind of sort of stream of consciousness really aren't they the the prose um the prose books um uh, he'd always drawn you know he'd been to art school Dylan started to to kind of make art and and um obviously did his prose poems on the back of the albums. So, you know, they had loads in common, I think, temperamentally. And I think I put it at one point in the book that although it was natural that they would become friends and did to an extent, they couldn't dominate each other, which is what they tended to do to other people. It was their kind of, you know, modus operandi was to be the dominant person in a relationship or indeed a friendship. And they couldn't do that with each other. Yeah, I think I think definitely... John kind of absorbs Dylan's spirit. And I think he does it quite, I think one of the, the very appealing things about Lennon is his openness of reference, the fact that he was violent as a young man. And he was very open about that later. And in the same way, you know, he kind of takes to wearing a Dylan style cap on the set of A Hard Day's Night. Whereas Dylan at this point, um, he explicitly says in the Rolling Stone interview, where he talks about the Beatles in, in 70 or 71, that he kept it all to himself. He didn't want to let on how much he, he really loved the Beatles' music, um, which I, th I think often leads to people misinterpreting the, the personal and the artistic relationship. Um, there's a kind of a bit of a, a tone that I pick up sometimes in Dylan writing, mm. where Dylan is always the clever one. He's always the one who's a step ahead, and he's always kind of got the smarts on the Beatles, which I don't think is true. Uh, I think they were very much artistic equals. I think they were uh, intellectual equals in Lennon and Dylan's case. And I, I think they both had that capacity of very intelligent, very artistic guys. You know, they, neither of them went to uni or anything like that. You know, they left, they left school pretty early to make music. And they had that kind of, you know, intense curiosity for, for the arts, but they were also quite defensive when they were asked about it. So in press, in press conferences, again, I think Dylan and Lennon often kind of use humour to push away questions which might be a bit too close to home or which might challenge them in some way. 
something interesting there is if you look at the the Beatles press conferences, obviously specifically post America '64 and into the mm. other tours, a lot of those questions are quite different from the questions that Dylan gets from his fame. You know, some of the stuff in the No Direction Home film. Um, which I'm sure the Scorsese film, which I'm sure most people are aware of, that edit together some of those, you know, those the kind of questions that he gets about, you know, life and philosophy and the future and motorcycles and everything. Whereas the Beatles basically get from a lot of it, not entirely, but they still get, you know, when's a bubble going to burst and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's an interesting kind of um, uh, a comparison. Yeah, it is. You know, I, mean, I keep watching stuff back and, keep thinking of new stuff. You know, that's the wonderful thing about these people and what they did and, and the era that it's kind of inexhaustible. You know, there's so much to, to find out and so many connections to make. And and again, you know, the, the Beatles, it, it, I think at one point I say that the sort of myth is that they were completely muzzled about Vietnam, for example, but mm. they did start to get questions about it in 66 and uh, in Japan, for example, and they, and they did say, you know, we're against it. I guess Dylan gets this kind of such intensity uh, in in some of the questions, and you can see him. You know, he's this, he's a kind of little guy, chain smoking on his own with with this kind of group of quite arty people. I'm thinking of I think San Francisco, December '65. You know, at times you can just feel him thinking these guys are, are insane. You know. And, and then he says things like, you know, they say, are you, are you this or that? And he says, I'm a song and dance man. And then that gets taken seriously as well when you know, it was just a kind of flippant remark to say, it doesn't matter that much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you, you call the chapter on 1965 in the book Convergence. And I got the impression that you kind of suggested that this was perhaps the year where the three of them were maybe most in tune with each other. Can you tell us kind of what what happened in '65 that made them connect so much? As as you said, they, uh, Dylan and the Beatles meet in August '64, and they kind of hang out whenever they can, really. So I mean, it isn't that often? It's like two or three times a year as as they crisscross um, and find themselves in the same town at the same time. They're kind of hanging out. The Beatles meet the Beach Boys, uh, or at least um, I think Mike and Carl. Uh, around the same time in 65, August 65. So they're kind of hanging out. And I think what you do get in, in 65 quite clearly is examples of each other's influence on their records. Uh, you get that on Bringing It All Back Home. I, I don't think Dylan would have written uh, Love Minus Zero or She Belongs to Me, which are basically pop songs for the first time mm. without absorbing the Beatles, without kind of feeling comfortable, I guess, with them. Uh, at, you know, without being friends almost. It, it, you get the Beatles obviously doing You've Got to Hide Your Love Away on the Help soundtrack, which, which is very dylan and, and not, they don't really try and hide that. Uh, you've got the Beach Boys um, singing a song called Girl Don't Tell Me, which is very beatle and which actually uh, Brian Wilson said was um, a kind of tribute to Ticket to Ride because the lyric is, Girl, don't tell me you'll write I right. So there's a kind of echo of to, to ride. So, I mean, it's kind of there in the music. And I think also that the that chapter title Convergence relates to the, the broader context because you've, you've got bands who are kind of okay. I mean, this is my judgment mm. in 64, maybe um, like the, the Stones or the Kinks who were doing fairly kind of derivative rhythm and blues kind of stuff. But then you suddenly get this convergence of sounds in spring 65. You get the last time from the Stones. Um, you get Mr. Tambourine Man from the Birds who kind of form as a really explicit response to the Beatles um, and to Dylan. You got the last time, you got Mr. Tambourine Man, you've got Ticket to Ride, you've just had Subterranean Homesick Blues. Um, the Kinks come in with See My Friend. Later in the year, you've got California Girls like a Rolling Stone uh, satisfaction and and it's a very different vibe you know I've called it a kind of mid 60s mid tempo vibe they're not ballads they're not out and out rock and roll songs they're just kind of sitting in this lovely groove which then all the all the bands are kind of emulating uh, and you start to hear you know the same sounds you, you get 
basically a tambourine on every record, whether it's from Motown or from Parlophone or from uh, Capital or whoever, except not on Mr. Tambourine Man, ironically. There's not, not a tambourine to be heard. Uh, something interesting, actually, uh, that I found from the book was uh, you sort of talk about 65 is you refer to the Help album as mm. a blip, um, which doesn't fit that that narrative, which is relatively commonplace of each Beatles album growing and building and building and, bu- and building. What do you think caused it? What happened with Help that meant they were a little bit kind of, uh, they weren't quite on the money for the whole record? Uh, probably marijuana. <laughs> by, the, by their own admission, they were stoned after midday on, on the set of Help. They're also constantly touring as they as they were throughout those years. And there's such a sudden upswing in the quality of what other bands are doing. Lennon gets a real shock from subterranean homesick blues. Of course, it's like suddenly, you know, it's really, now it's on the, the Beatles' own territory, but, but on the whole other level, really, lyrically. Hmm. And, and I think they're just, they haven't quite absorbed it all. You know, I made the point that whereas Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys are, what specifically Brian Wilson in the producer's chair is already using an awful lot of instrumentation, um, experimenting with it and, and kind of making sense of it, partly in emulation of, of Phil Spector productions, but also starting to develop his own sound. But that on help, the kind of things like using the string quartet on yesterday, you know, there are bongos here and there. Um, maybe a flute, is it on, uh, you've got to hide your love away. But it doesn't really cohere to my ear anyway. It just mm. doesn't, doesn't quite have the, it doesn't fall into place uh, the way, for example, the whole of A Hard Day's Night or the first side of Beatles for Sale or then again, Rubber Soul and Revolver. It's just like right on the money from the, from the first note to the end, pretty much. We can't talk about the following year, 1966, without talking about Pet Sounds. I kind of came to the book not as a huge Beach Boys fan, so it was interesting kind of learning about their discography, but I get the sense that Pet Sounds was the first kind of proper Beach Boys record to uh, a, a certain extent. I mean, just a, a few questions around around Pet Sounds. Where does it come from? Uh, you know, how influential was Rubber Soul uh, and some of Dylan's work uh, on, on the making of Pet Sounds? Yeah, I think it is. It's what it is. One of those albums where we can never really say where it came from because because it, it it definitely makes sense when you listen through to to the the Beach Boys records from around '64 onwards. There's a lot of experimentation, as I've said, with the the musicians and the instruments. There is some interesting work on both the Beach Boys today and on summer days, summer nights including some kind of exotic sounding instrumentals. But in terms of where it comes from, he absolutely loved Rubber Soul. As I've noted in the book, it was clearly the American edition of Rubber Soul, Hmm. which is very different from the ones that the Beatles sequenced um, and very different from the ones that we grew up with here. But it, it was, you know, ironically, Capital wanted it to sound like a folk rock album. So the birds had tried to copy the Beatles and produce something different as a result. And Capital now wanted the next Beatles album to sound like The Birds and the other Barry Maguire and the other people who were around that year. And as a result of that, he got a very specific vibe out of it. You know, he said it, it cohered or it hung together like nothing he'd ever heard before. But he'd already done something in his own kind of idiom, in his own way that cohered, which was on the Today album. So it's got sort of faster tracks on side one, then it's got more ballady, more very introspective ballads on side two. And, and it, it does all hang together. So I think what you what you often find digging into this kind of exchange of influence is that things really hit home when they reflected something they were already trying to do. So when Brian Wilson says Rubber Soul cohered, it was the greatest album ever, um, it's because that was what he was trying to do and had already um, partially succeeded in doing on, on the Today album. Then he's working with a different writer. He starts working with Tony Asher, who, who um, was he wrote advertising jingles, but he brought something different. And, and I think 
it's already there on today and summer days, summer nights, but, you know, he's completely escaped finally the racetrack and the, the beach really, you know, um, it's not about surfing. It's not about driving cars or motorbikes or anything they could drive in those early songs. And so it's kind of fully introspective. There's, there's a comment on the, uh, the classic albums on Pet Sounds where someone says that they think that what Brian took from Rubber Soul was, was melancholy and a kind of validation uh, of the idea of writing music that was introspective and, and melancholic and sad. And certainly Pet Sounds is almost uniquely at that point introspective. What was the reaction from John and Paul and from Dylan when they heard it? I haven't been able to find Dylan's reaction to it. Um, I'm sure it's out there. I've noted in the book that I couldn't get into libraries as I was writing it, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff online. So I I, I don't think I found a, a Dylan reaction to it. The Beatles heard it early. Bruce Johnston brought a copy over by plane to London, kind of hoping he'd, he'd get to play it to them and anyone else who would listen. So he, he, he's in the company of Keith Moon. Uh, they come across John and Paul in one of those clubs. They uh, they all kind of hook up there, go back to the Waldorf Hotel where Bruce Johnson plays them, Pet Sounds, he plays it twice. And, I th- you know, we know enough about their musical intelligence to be able to guess that they that they were stunned by it. And they were, you know, there's there's one account where they they go off and start kind of whispering at the piano immediately in the hotel, which to me doesn't sound that likely. But, um, you know, they loved it. And Len- Lennon had also said uh, positive things about Beach Boys records. But I think McCartney hears something even more clearly than he, he does. There's a trace of the influence on Revolver, most of which had been recorded when they hear Pet sounds. The first song they write after hearing it, I think, was "Here, There, and Everywhere." You know, there's that you can sort of sense why that might have um, been partly influenced by hearing Pet sounds. But I, th- I think the influence comes in much more clearly as they start work on um, Penny Lane and then the Sergeant Pepper album at the end of '66 and start of '67. I suppose the other thing to to think about there is that Paul, if you look at John and Paul kind of personally and creatively mm-hmm. at that point. Paul is just coming into the peak, maybe, you know, Paul's really on a, on a run and, you know, you know, I'd never want to say anything that negative about John, obviously in 1967, if you can produce Strawberry Fields and Day in the Life, etc., then you can't say anything too negative, but John is slightly stymied, isn't he, creatively at this point, he's slightly isolated, etc., etc. I think that, uh, I think maybe one of the reasons why it works for Paul, Paul will often in interviews you know, I remember in the 92 Southbank show on Sergeant Pepper where they interviewed Brian Wilson on a slightly dazed Brian Wilson for those that have seen it on that documentary. He, he really pushes home the impact, doesn't he, of Pet Sounds? I think maybe that's why Paul connected with it a bit more. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and I think it's probably one of the things that he's absorbing that spring. You know, I, I describe how he's, um, it's in Steve Turner's book, it's really well described, Beatles 66 how he's he's just kind of he's he's sort of self-educating at speed you know he's he's picking up on experimental italian movies picking up on uh, avant-garde music plays he's just kind of picking up everything he's taking piano lessons from a composer uh, which he, he there's a lovely quote where he says he he, he kind of enjoyed it but the it, the music just didn't look like music <laughs> which is such a nice contrast between a kind of a trained musician and an untrained one. You know, obviously he, he he is and was a fantastic musician, but he was he wasn't technically or you know classically trained, let's say. And yeah, I think Pet Sounds would have, you know, it must have hit him on a similar level, I guess. I think Brian Wilson emerges from the book as this very very sensitive, very introspective, very fragile, but also very driven, very determined, and very competitive guy having having kind of explicitly felt knocked back by the first flush of the the british invasion and the beatles he's kind of clawed his way back at this point and he's, he's made something on the back of hearing rubber soul on the back of his own experimentation that uh, that has kind of turned the tables if you like on the on the beatles so talking of of competition something that again that your book kind of brought home to me was 
1967, of these three artists, the Beatles are way out in front in the sense of production of music. Dylan obviously releases Blonde on Blonde in, in 66 and then goes away. And the Beach Boys are working through Smile. And, you know, that's a well-told tale about how that doesn't come to fruition as it's they would have wanted. And there's all sorts of kind of internal issues there. But the Beatles are motoring on and producing uh, Strawberry Fields, Pay Lane, Sergeant Pepper and Magical, and some of the songs on Magical Mystery Tour. How do you think the absence of, of Dylan and the Beach Boys primarily from the music scene affected the music that the Beatles made in 67? The paths of the Beatles and Dylan have kind of diverged at this point. Um, when when the, there's a sounds like this is the most amazing is an amazing moment where the Beatles play Dylan some of the acetates from Revolver and he plays them some of the acetates from Blonde on Blonde in the London hotel room. I mean, it's like it's crazy. But Dylan didn't like Tomorrow Never Knows. His reaction to it was was one of his slightly barbed remarks where it's, he says something like, I, I get it. You don't want to be cute anymore. Now, he was much too smart to really think that. Mm. Um, but he was obviously just, you know, again, maybe taken taken aback, possibly by the sort of leap in musical ambition. But he didn't like the sound of it, really. He, he, he didn't like Sergeant Pepper very much. He was very, you know, he, he saw it as very overproduced. Uh, and so when he comes to uh, record John Wesley Harding at the end of 67, it's kind of fantastically assessed and paired back, but, you know, in his own way, a reaction to not just the Beatles, obviously, but to the kind of, you know, the, the sort of riches of 67 pop music, if you like. So I think the Beatles and Dylan have slightly parted company mm. um, musically and literally because neither of them are touring and they don't get to meet in the same way. And the last kind of, you know, injection of competitive impetus comes from the Beach Boys when... McCartney hears good vibrations or an early mix of it uh, in the, at the end of the summer 66 tour or the unhappy summer 66 tour rather than their last gig. So in LA, um, he gets to hear good vibrations and sort of literally and figuratively the kind of bass lines, the kind of on the, on the beat vibe kind of pulses through Penny Lane, pulses through songs like uh, Fixing a Hole and Getting Better on Sgt. Pepper. Um, he starts to use slash chords more in his songwriting. Sort of early 67, you know, you've, you've still got this intense um, artistic focus, I guess, on Sgt. Pepper. One of the things that surprised me writing the book was how much I enjoyed Sgt. Pepper. I, th I, th I think its reputation has kind of suffered over time. Mm. There's, there's one, I mean, I quote it, there's one list, you know, sort of top 100 records where Sgt. Pepper is something like, AC7 and Revolver at three, which I just think is bonkers, really. The combination of artistic ambition and experiment and focus, but still keeping it incredibly tight, you know, having that kind of pop sensibility to make every note count uh, is really evident all the way through, pretty much all the way through Sgt. Pepper. And then, you know, that's when Brian Wilson quits, you know, it's like throws in the towel pretty much, um, as he hears Strawberry Fields Forever on the radio in February 67, I think, and then meets up with Paul, who's kind of buzzing from Sergeant Pepper, which is about to be released, and plays him She's Leaving Home. And, you know, Brian Wilson is just not, he's not healthy at that point. You know, he, he can't kind of make sense of Smile. He can't really keep it together, you know, on, on a human level. So this is a long way of saying that um, there's a point at which, you know, Dylan's kind of out of the, the picture. He's off the scene. The Beach Boys don't release uh, Smile. There's nothing until Heroes and Villains in the middle of 67. Um, and it hadn't occurred to me really until now. But, you know, maybe with Dylan out of the picture, with the Beach Boys, these two kind of dominant uh, competitor influences, maybe that's one element in, in the slight drop in focus uh, in the Beatles recordings, which is, I think it's evident in, in the listening, even though I really love Magical Mystery Tour and everything else they did in 67. Mm. Uh, Ian McDonald is quite scathing about their, their kind of attention to detail in the studio, which I think 
personally, I think is, is forgivable given how beautiful the music is mm. and how hard they've been working up until that point. But yeah, I, th- I think there's a, there's a sort of tension drop, isn't there? Possibly uh, explained by large quantities of LSD on the one hand, and possibly also just that they, they were so far out in front, you know, when I was drawing out the timelines, I was kind of stunned. I thought I'd made a mistake. There must be more that year from from Dylan and the Beach Boys. But no, and the, the Beatles just had this incredible work ethic, you know, drugs or not. Um, they just kept kept making music. I think something for me that I got from the book about that, about 67, is as Dylan and the Beach Boys kind of recede a little bit, I think Pepper, it's a much more English sounding record. Um, it's got that kind of Edwardian sense to it which was kind of on vogue with the english side of of um yeah. swing in london magical mystery tour the film i mean it's quite a obviously it's filmed in in england but it's got you know vickers running across west Malling airfield and you know it's got a very english sense to it which helps explain why it, it didn't exactly travel that well um, didn't but, travel as far as its own country. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let alone anywhere else. So yeah. I, I don't know whether or not you agree, but I get a real kind of, I don't know, maybe it's because Pepper was recorded in a cold English winter that it's got that sense to it. But I do think it's, it's maybe their most kind of provincial English sounding album. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's true. It's really interesting. Uh, yeah, it was recorded in the winter. You know, the promos for Strawberry Fields for Every Penny Lane in Knoll Park. There's, you know, there's no leaves on the trees. And I, I learned just in time to put it in the book that May 67, the month leading up to its release, was the wettest May ever. I think still is. That Somebody tweeted it while I was literally making the final changes. And there's a kind of irony to that, isn't there? Because it's, it's obviously synonymous with the summer of love. But yeah, it came out of a, of a wet English um, winter and spring. Came out of kind of late nights traipsing into Abbey Road. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like, I, I, you know, I... I I've paid more attention generally to the music than the lyrics throughout, just because that's the way I feel the music, if you like. But, you know, when I started looking at the, the lyrics on Sgt. Pepper, it is really English. Mm. And it's it's very grounded in a way, like, you know, for all that the music is experimental and the atmosphere is kind of heady and drug and flower laden. But, you know, it's it's about parks and, you know, the Isle of Wight, uh, people's grandparents, people's sisters, it's, it's really fascinating. I think, it's, I think it's very kind of charming. It's very appealing. So the book kind of comes to an end in, in 68. I think, it's, I think it's interesting that, as you say, you kind of, throughout the book, there are these really helpful kind of timeline tables where you illustrate what the individual artists have released uh, over the course of the respective years. And in 68, the release schedule for all of them slows down the energy i think you said in the book the energy and the zip that was there declined so two kind of questions there where do we find them in 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 68 what had kind of happened outside of just getting older to reduce their output i think they've all kind of been taken a bit of a knock haven't they um dylan has started uh, making a lot of music again and, and he's released an album at the end of 67 but he's he still only makes i think one live appearance that year at the very start, Woody Guthrie Memorial. You know, the Magical Mystery Tour was a real flop and, and that, that must have been a huge shock to kind of all concerned. I'm kind of fond of it. I think it's lovely. And I think it's almost as interesting as a, a film about kind of Englishness and like almost as a comedy film. You know, it ties in with their Christmas records where sometimes it just you just think, well, they've got to be the goons or Monty Python in on this. It's like the Beatles are almost the missing link between the goons and Monty Python. And of course, um, George Harrison was close to Eric Idle in the 70s. The Beach Boys are sort of in disarray. They're still releasing albums, but, you know, Brian is is kind of neither here nor there. You know, so at one point, having kind of been quite reluctantly his own session musicians, they're now kind of pleading with him to write and, and give them stuff to sing and they're starting to write their own stuff as well. So they've all taken knocks. Uh, the Beatles then head off for India at the start of the year. I think in terms of the Beatles, the energy is clearly there mm. through India. It's clearly there um, once they're back and they make the demos. But then 
Lennon and McCartney both start really key new relationships in the spring of 68. It means that I guess the creative tension in their relationship does, almost doesn't need to be there anymore. Like they've got that soulmate, mm. um, but the soulmate is, is their, their you know, partner and soon to be wife. Like I was, again, I hadn't kind of clucked the fact that they got married within a week of each other in 69. It's kind of fascinating in both cases to, to older women, uh, women who were already um, mothers. You know, it's so interesting. The, the, you know, with their different personalities. And, you know, obviously Linda and Yoko are very different also, but they were kind of drawn somehow into some some kind of similar space there. So, yeah, I think Lennon and McCartney need each other less. I think Apple is, you know, the Apple core is this kind of massive distraction. You know, you can see in the press conferences in New York that they kind of don't really know what they're talking about. Uh, you know, after all this time when they're starting to to kind of, you know, have more fulfilling home lives, let's say, after 18 months off the road, they they get back together in the studios for the White Album and just things start to fray a bit, don't they? Again, I love the White Album. I love lots of the music that the Beach Boys made that year as well, but it, it just isn't quite as quite as focused or maybe not quite as joyous in some respects as what had come before. And I suppose the other thing is you're starting to see the emergence of alternative artists, new artists, that kind of cream Hendrix sound suddenly becomes the kind of prominent. And then of course the following year Zeppelin appear that it must've been difficult for the three of them. Maybe the Beatles adapt a little bit. They talk about the, the cream concert, don't they? In the sessions, you know, they, I suppose they're better placed. You can't really imagine a beach boys record and you might know more than me. I can't think of a really heavy, Beach Boys kind of sound, um, and Dylan can't really can't really go there at, at that point. So um, I think maybe it's the the combination of these new, or and of course the other side of that, you've got things like the Monkeys and the original Bee Gees make they feel that pop side, yeah. you know, uh, sound. So suddenly all three of them are a little bit scrabbling around looking for not an audience, but they're maybe looking for a direction a bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I guess. Yeah, you could definitely see the, the Beatles as slightly, they were much too good to ever be marooned or stranded. Yeah. For want of a better word, they're slightly stranded between the pop that they've left behind, which other people are starting to do really well, and the kind of more experimental, heavier sounds that they're interested in. Uh, and which is why I've, I've said the White Album doesn't really have a point of view. You know, it, it's got some of my favorite Beatles music. But a lot of the time, it, it feels like it's kind of talking about other music, almost. It's like a comment on other music, whereas for so long, it was the other way around and the other music was commenting on them. You know, there's that nice moment where what you would give to be a fly on the wall, where I think Paul and George go to see Jimi Hendrix, the Hendrix experience at the Savile Theatre, a kind of two days after a week at most after Sgt. Pepper's released and he plays Sgt. Pepper back to them which is kind of a fantastic tribute. It's a bit scary as well. So to, to kind of head toward a conclusion of our yeah. conversation, uh, Luke, uh, was there anything that, that kind of surprised you after finishing the book while you were writing it? Did your view of any of the three artists change in any way from when you first sat down to start to write it? I sat down to write it as a fan. I love the music uh, and... That didn't change, you know. I'm I'm still a fan. If anything, I, I admire them more. It was never going to be a book that tried to kind of take them down because of their personalities or whatever. You know, I think one of the, one of the things you 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 realize working through those years is how kind of amazingly sane the Beatles and Dylan were. You can't say that about Brian Wilson just because of you know a combination of circumstances. I think you know his mental fragility, the drug intake, it, it just overloaded him and the workload. But like the Beatles, they just kept going, you know, and, and Dylan did as well. And, and Dylan knew when to when to take time out. Mm. Um, and then he, he comes out with this, personally, I don't love John Wesley Harding. That surprised me because I have loved it in the past. But listening to it after listening to the basement tapes properly, I just didn't get the same warmth from it. 
I really was quite taken aback by how stunningly good Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper are, because I, I thought I might come to them and think, you know, they're okay. I wasn't, I wasn't ever going to, so I wasn't in the business of trying to take down the myths or anything like that. But in fact, that you know, the myths really stand up in those cases. Um, you know, I think Dylan's kind of bravery going out on the road in 65 when everyone is booing is really spectacular. Mm. None of them stood down, you know, they were extremely brave. And, you know, I, I hadn't realised how much Dylan loved the Beatles and I think how, I think their impact on him and his music is is underestimated. And and I think when people talk about the Beatles and Dylan, I, I think it's mistaken if they make out that Dylan was the smart one and, and that the Beatles were kind of playing catch up. Because, you know, I don't think that's the case. And how quickly it all happened. I, I guess that comes out of writing the timelines and just seeing how incredibly compressed it all is. You know, mm. Ian McDonald talks about that, you know, the, the kind of from one song to another. At the end of 65, the Beatles are recording Michelle. At the end of 66, they're recording Strawberry Fields Forever. At the end, you know, mid-64, Dylan's still recording solo on another side of Bob Dylan. And, you know, eight, nine months later, he's he's recording Subterranean Homesick Blues. Like, the, it's incredibly compressed. And I, I, I've always thought, and I still think, that we'll be looking at these artists in... 100, 200, 300 years, God willing, <laughs> as up there with any artist in any field. And what's kind of unique is that we're working in such close proximity, really, that they knew each other, they met each other. And, you know, that didn't quite happen with, let's say, Haydn, uh, Beethoven, Mozart. You know, there was a kind of generation gap of 15, 20 years between them. And yet with the, the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Dylan, it's all happening at once. It's kind of fantastically compressed. Maybe I'm speaking as a non-teenager anymore, but uh, I, I don't know whether or not you could ever get this happen again. Do you, I mean, I think culture and music have changed so much and not for the worse or for the better, because, you know, I love a lot of modern pop music. Yeah, um, but yeah. I don't, I don't, I, do you think this could ever, this kind of level of influence amongst artists could ever kind of reoccur? I think not at the same, certainly not with the same sales yeah there's a lot of great modern pop music there's a lot of fantastic modern indie music which i think is you know is clearly sort of explicitly influenced by the music of the 60s and i think it, i think indie music now is better than it ever has been but it's not selling records you know the idea of the public buying into something as experimental as you know, Dylan's work in 65 or the Beatles in 66, 67, uh, Pet Sounds. I think you could see it in, you can see it in hip hop, I think. Mm. Um, I think, you know, you get critical acclaim and commercial success in, in hip hop um, and some R&B, but yeah, not really in rock and roll. Certainly not, which makes the the years that you cover in the book, I think even more special and even more uh, treasured really and uh you know as I, as i've said on twitter and elsewhere this is a marvelous book and should be read by everyone and thank you luke for your time and thank you particularly for bringing us what they heard joe thank you so much <laughs>